0: another edition of Spyglass. I'm your host, Sir Omar, not Jasmine Lee for your returning listeners out there, and that is because this is a special extra episode separate from our monthly podcasts. To celebrate the 30th anniversary of the reunification of Germany in 1990, CEO and publisher of Harper Times, Mr. Andrew Work and I sat down with Herr Dieter Lamle, the Consul General of Hong Kong and Macau, for an interview and lots of beer. Before we get started, just a friendly reminder that Harbour Times is on Patreon, where you can get access to this podcast ad-free, as well as access to exclusive photo sets and bonus content from our articles. We're a small independent publication that wants to show the world that Hong Kong is more than just a finance hub. Every little bit helps. Reach out to us as well with your questions, comments, or concerns. We would love to hear from our audience. Alright, let's get into it.
1: I'm Andrew Work, and we're here for the Harbor Times podcast, and we've got a special one today because Cyril Ma of Harbor Times and I are here speaking to Dieter Lamle who is the Consul General for the uh, Federal Republic of Germany to Hong Kong and Macau. Can't forget Macau. Herr Lamley, thank you very much for having
2: us. Yes, hi. Thank you for being here.
1: Yeah, and this is a special occasion uh, that Cyril and I are coming to talk to you, uh, which is the occasion of uh, the 30th anniversary of the reunification of Germany. And, uh, I'm, old and I'm old enough to remember uh, where I was. I was just starting university. Cyril probably I was is not <laughs> not, old, not old enough to remember where he was. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's you know, so much has happened since then in the world. So much has happened in Germany. Uh, And of course, you know, you have had a special role to play uh, and really have a special perspective on on what's happening on your country. And over the last couple of years, uh, maybe you've got some special perspectives on what it means, uh, you know, for Germany and the the Germany-Hong Kong relationship. So uh, we're really excited to talk about it today. But I do want to set the stage because it seems like your career in the diplomatic service started with... Reunification. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you had one year on the job in the old capital in Bonn, and then, boom, reunification. you know,
2: and, uh... yeah, yeah. This is my my first posting was Kigali in Rwanda. Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, which is a very small and tiny place in in Eastern Africa. And uh, there, the fall of the Berlin Wall was the ninth of November, and we had no television, almost no radio, no internet, no communication. And of course, we had no idea what was going on in Germany because this was such a surprise that the w- wall was going to fall, nobody was expecting it. So I was not on the telephone with Berlin or with Bonn at that time. And uh, so my wife and I, I just met my wife. Uh, we had a very nice day knowing and nothing. Right. And then suddenly a colleague of the foreign, one of foreign ministry called me and said, congratulations. I said, what for? Um, Yeah, congratulations, the wall is down. And I said, okay, thank you very much for the information. And I thought, what is he telling me? Uh, Sorry, where was he from? Which country? From Rwanda, from the foreign minister of Rwanda. Rwanda. Yes, Rwanda. He phoned me, congratulations, the fall of the wall. I reacted, okay, because I didn't believe him. Uh, Uh, (laughs) I didn't believe him. So I called immediately, Bond and said, hey, what's going on? And they showed me. They told me, yes, everything has changed. And then I Ask them please send me a video at that time video box like this okay it's as, as quick as possible like
1: a vhs tape yes
2: exactly as yeah. quick, with the pictures of the television and things like that yeah. so that i can show it the small german community we had in kigali three days later this tape arrived yeah. and i made a cinema or a, a film evening in the embassy wow and i can't you can't imagine in the middle of nowhere these pictures from Germany Yeah, everybody was very close to the tears Yeah, so it was a very very emotional evening one of the most emotional I have ever had in my life
1: wow you know as soon as you got off the phone with Bond you must have started calling every German and- yeah of course of course yeah. Yeah, of
2: course wow yeah and this unification is uh, part of my professional life since then before coming to Hong Kong I was based in Berlin and in this nine years of Berlin time I was for 3 years the chief of protocol of berlin mm-hmm. and it was it happened to be in in the year 2014 when we celebrated 25 years of fall of the wall okay. and i was responsible for all the the events with my team of course was sure. for, uh, with all the for all the events in berlin and we decided to build up the wall again virtually by putting where the wall was former wall was um, illuminated globes and balloons Ah. So we had 15.2 kilometers of virtual border wall Eight thousand balloons, yeah, and a lot of people coming to it for this weekend to Berlin to see um, how the, where the wall was and to to contemplate and to remember. Young people saw it for the first time, including my kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are younger; they don't know what happened, and where was the wall, and why are you so so interested in the wall? <laughs> and this was uh, also a fantastic moment. And then on the historical date of opening the. Border 721, the 9th of November, we had a big discussion what should we do with the 8,000 balloons? Really? Should we make a big firework and then they fly away again, yeah. or should we make it very silent? And after long discussions, we decided we will make it very silent. So it just happened. Suddenly, 8,000 balloons went into the air. CNN was there, filmed it. It was a picture that went across the world. And this was the second moment where really. Uh, the unification got very close to me because yeah we organised it and it was a very, very big and emotional yeah. momentum.
1: And you, as the chief of protocol, you must have been responsible for hosting all the foreign leaders from around the world and determining who sat where. And
2: exactly. People. Yeah, organizing more or less everything. And I, what I will also, of course, we had our protocol, our big event, and uh, in the concert house. And of course, we had the German President Angela Merkel was there. Everybody was there, and we also invited Gorbachev. Mm. And Gorbachev came. Okay. And when he came in, he received twenty minutes. Of standing ovations. I have 20 minutes, minutes of standing. Only well, watch out. people would not stop. Wow. I have never seen that before. Yep. 20 minutes standing ovation just for coming in. Mm-hmm. And wow. this means, and this shows also the greatness of this man and also the gratitude Germany has towards him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of course, because he. Yeah. Of course, he is more loved in Germany than he was loved in the <laughs> Soviet Union. but... <laughs> yeah, this is history. <laughs> that's, that's, that's that's so often yeah. way. I mean, that's, that's yeah. an incredible story. And I yeah. mean, uh,
1: for you, I mean, you know, I, we could note uh, that when you started your career, you started on the human rights desk in Bonn, and you seem to have yeah. had a couple of, of roles over the years that would yeah. put you on the front lines of human rights. And I think uh, for people that are listening, I think we, we, we probably should be clear. When you say that you were in Rwanda at that time, uh, just because, you know, We've looked at the timeline and people tend to associate R- yeah. Rwanda with the civil war and genocide. So just, just to be clear, you weren't there for that. Is that, is that correct?
2: No, no. I was there. This was a normal post where the, yeah. I was deputy ambassador at that time. Uh, the preparations for the genocide started when we were still there, but it really happened two years after we, we left.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I, so you, you didn't see you know a lot of the horrible things that happened after that, but knowing the country, uh, knowing the people, it must have left an impression on you because I mean, uh, you know, Germany was a country divided, uh, yeah. divided by foreigners, divided by ideology to some extent. I mean, Germans didn't ask to be divided. Uh, Rwanda, of course, their, their division in society was was of quite a different construct.
2: Yeah, completely different. Completely
1: different. Um, but I mean, you know. You started in human rights. You've seen Germany divided, uh, Rwanda divided in a completely different way. And this must have colored your your perspective of what unity means. Yes. And so I'm wondering, you know, given those backgrounds, what has unification meant for you and and your take on it for Germany? And then maybe, you know, I I don't know if you want to split that up into what it means for you and what it means for Germany more broadly.
2: Well, for me... Nobody believed in the, that the unification of Germany would happen. Yeah. I remember very well. My mother comes from East Germany. Okay,
1: so you, you had family
2: on, on Yes, sides. my mother. And she left before the wall was built. built was built in sixty one, August 61. But she left before that with her family. Mm. So we had never this, not one part of the family here and one part of the family there. But of course, you being a young man, you discuss with your parents. And I said, come on, what are you talking about? This is never going to happen. Mm-hmm. And she, being Eastern, said, well, you might be right, but I don't lose hope. And yeah. uh, so we have the different generations. And the same what my children are saying now to me. Why is it so important for you? It's over. Yeah. Don't think about it. Why are you just making an a a article on Unifil? Reuni- who cares? Yeah. yeah? And uh, I think it is very important. Never to stop believing in the impossible. So I really became an optimist during that. Yeah, I was always very positive, but this was really nobody, nobody. In the morning of the 9th of November, nobody was expecting how the evening or the day would end. Nobody. People who say this they don't they are not telling the truth. That they predicted. No, it was not predictable. And this this is very important for young people, for everybody in principle, but also for young people, never stop believing in the impossible because it might get possible. And we have always a big possible yeah. in big politics we have the situation where you think, Okay, this is not going to move. Someday it moves. Okay. Yeah? or it can move if you have patience if you have engagement of people this you need you need heart you need people together if you don't do anything nothing changes Yeah, yeah. this is very clear but I am very convinced that every problem can be found as a solution also on the political side it takes sometimes take good persons working on it and then look how the world has changed yeah yeah. who would have believed that this changing where Soviet Union disappeared, when you look at uh, again at unification, we are at the border of Warsaw Pact and NATO, the two biggest enemies, and we were foreign countries yeah. and still, it went yeah.
1: that's quite a yeah, that's a, it's, a, it's an interesting perspective um,
2: so calling about uh, unification yeah, Korea yeah. Uh, a lot of people ask us and me uh, why is Korea not copying Germany mm-hmm. and I always say no Germany cannot be copied because it was this situation yeah. the window of history opened for one second and the window of history for Korea will open in another second yeah. and the difference you cannot compare it, it's completely different but it's possible Yeah. you don't know how Korea is going to develop, yeah. North and South Korea yeah. no so we are celebrating the
1: 30 years of unification, but my understanding is that unification is still, in many ways, a work in progress. So I know uh, the, the economist uh, late last year ran a kind of a, a, a retrospective, we're looking, looking at the state of unification now, yeah. uh, and talked about you know some of the parts that were maybe still a work in progress. What, what does unity mean today uh, as as a process in motion for Germany?
2: Well, there are technical. Issues like that the wages are not yet equal mm-hmm. and the pos- possibilities for work are not yet equal. And it's a work, it's a work in process. Sure. It will never be finished. Um, because some people said now we have, some Germans have a wall in their heads. Right. This is always what has been commented specifically. Yeah. This might even be true. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that there are some people in Germany, from East Germany, that didn't visit West Germany till now. And also from West Germany that never go, went to East Germany. I still think so. There are not many, but some. Um, so we have the problem of, of integration the problem of acceptance, because as it happens, and there we have to be, be, be very open, the wall was torn down by East Germans. Not by a tsunami, not by West Germans, but by East Germans. And the peaceful revolution was possible because East German police did not shoot yeah. on the East Germans tearing down the wall. So, in principle, you the reaction should have been okay we owe them everything so they give they get a lot now from us what they get what they got was of course money but this is not they needed money but this is not at, at, opportunities. at, at opportunities and it, but at a lot of possibilities but recognition mental integration not taking also taking over some positive things from them this did not happen there because time was so, so fast. So decisions... So probably it was not, not doing enough. It has not been done enough. And this you can see still today. Now there are Western arrogance, yeah. East Aussies and Westies, this yeah, conflict. It's getting less and less, definitely. But it is still there and it will still take some time. Um, people there... Between thirty and fifty, it was difficult for them to to get the pace of the Western society, of capitalism. Imagine they were having their kavab work, for example, or trabi. Now look, a worker skilled for building trabis to a worker skilled for Mercedes. Okay,
1: sorry, trabis. So what are they
2: building? Tra- Trabi was one of the East German cars. Oh, the cars. Okay. The cars. T- yeah, map. Trabi's and so. Now a worker for tra- constructing Trabi's and a worker constructing Mercedes or BMW. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah and so and this was on a lot. Yeah. And their economy collapsed. Before the unification, it was more or less very bad, and it collapsed after unification. And then we had an institution called Mm Treuhand, and they were more or less organizing the bankruptcy. Okay. But they were not organizing the bankruptcy in a way to save as much as possible from Eastern Germany, but to wind it up, yeah, to liquidate. And there, a lot of unemployment existed or was born, and uh, this was very difficult for them. Right. So they, Even they, today, if yeah. I talk to East Germans, they said a little bit of more recognition would have been good. Mm, yeah.
1: yeah. That, I get it. However, I don't mean a however, I mean, it's, uh, but it is interesting that now, at the end of this year, yeah. we will see the retirement of what I think it is pretty easy to argue the most influential person uh, not just in the world of politics, but the most influential person uh, in the country since reunification, uh, who, of course, is the chancellor since 2005, and yeah. Merkel is going to be stepping down, and she, of course, is East German, and didn't get to be chancellor unless she was also wildly popular in the West. I mean, how has that, you know, given that half, almost half the time of reunification, there's there's been an East German uh, that has been the chancellor of the country. I mean, how how does that play into the unification uh, narrative? Well,
2: into the unification, not yet, because at that time she was a deputy spokesperson for the East German government. Yeah. Yeah, And uh, then became, under the last prime minister, Lothar de Maizière, she was a deputy spokesperson. Mm -hmm. So this, the chancellor who really is responsible and I'm very grateful to him, is Helmut Kohl. Sure. He noticed it's now or never. And imagine, we were really, it was in the international context, France, UK, Soviet Union, USA. They were not of one opinion. It took us a long time yeah, to get them on board. They were strictly against, uh, some of them were strictly against a too powerful Germany in Europe. Mm -hmm. That's why Helmut Kohl said very quickly, the German house must be under a European roof, making it very clear we are not intending a strong Germany, but we are intending a strong Europe with Germany in. Mm -hmm. Soviet Union, in principle, also Gorbachev at the very beginning of the process, he was he preferred the Germany, two Germans to get to keep and to stay divided. The U.S., they supported us very much. And um, so it was very, very difficult at that moment. And Helmut Kohl said, first act, then think. Okay. Because he had no time. The decisions were—it was so fast, everything, yeah. And of course, he was thinking a lot. But you can—you have two possible ways to approach a problem: either you start thinking, and after half a year, you have a solution, or you just do it and find something. Yet, yeah? deal, deal. <laughs> deal with it. Yet, yeah? you just do it. Sure. And he said, "We have now—it's opportunity. We have no time to wait. Now the window is open. It might close very quick again." And. Uh, that's why, for example, two weeks after the fall of the wall, he was still thinking about a confederation, right. a confederation between the two Germanies, and the East Germans who were going to order, who went to the street. It was it did not start in the 9th of November. It started in principle the beginning of October in Leipzig. Yeah, yeah, and these East Germans at that moment they did not think about joining West Germany. They were thinking about reforming and making their country better. The GDR, their intention was not to abolish GDR. uh, Their intention was to reform it, to make it better, to make it more democratic, to uh, alleviate the very bad business situation. This was what they are aiming at. And then we had two possibilities of Unite, either accession, what happened? Accession. Sure. The five East German Bundesländer joined the Federal Republic of Germany. Um, or discussion of a new constitution, joint constitution. Yeah, two countries together with one new constitution, which is then elected and, and supported by the by the people. So these were the two models, right. and it was the. The German, East German population in the first democratic elections ever in Eastern Germany in March nineteen ninety, say we want the quick, the fast way, we want just we want to join. Okay. Without yeah, with, with losing a lot of their own identity. We join, but in order to make it quicker, financial reasons, monetary reasons, Ostmark, Deutschmark, there were a lot of reasons why they are doing where we're doing it. And Kohl of course supported this. Because he was also, he said, we have nothing, we have a lot of time to lose, so let's be fast. Yep. And if you are too fast, sometimes then you <laughs> you make mistakes, but in principle it is a success, success story, no doubt about it. And I, I think that most Germans you ask today, they are very happy that it happened, yep. although it costed us a lot of money.
1: Yeah
2: yeah we are still paying solidarity tax now since thirty years which is seven point five percent of my salary goes for the solidarity tax mm. but everybody and they are going to stop this next year at least they are promising it
1: that, that might have more to do with the nature of taxation than it does to do with reunification there's exactly no, there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government
2: this tax. is this is it now <laughs> and now calling about, uh, speaking about Angela Merkel as East German um, she became chancellor 15 years after all that and during that time Helmut Kohl, the father of the unification, um, was her mentor. He always treated her very well and she became environmental minister, federal environmental minister. This is the first time I met her in Jakarta, being this minister and we were responsible for the visit of her and then um, she became the first woman as chancellor, and the first East German as chancellor. And, but she did not, I think people were really, specifically East German this. Uh oh, now it's very good, we have an East German, no doubt about that. But this would not have been enough. Of course, she had to be good, not only, yeah, uh, good, and she was good. And then, seven years later, we also had another, an East German president, Johannes Joachim Gauck, Mm -hmm. who was from 2012 till 2017, president, federal president, East German. So we have two East Germans at the top of the German state for the first time in history, and uh, this was, of course, a a clear signal that the two Germans are united.
1: Yeah, and I mean that may have something to do with um, Germany's stance today. And I, I, you know, I've made the argument in private conversations that. Germany is among the Western nations, I would say, in a a position of moral leadership and has been for a number of years now. Uh, And I mean, do you think that might have something to do with the way that people who came out of Eastern Germany, where human rights maybe, you know, they, they lived in a time when human rights were not as well respected, and they have perhaps put it at the top of Germany's agenda to be a strong champion of human rights?
2: Yes, in part. But the other part is, uh, if you look at West Germany, we are—we are not allowed for a long time to be militarily strong. Sure. Not at all. Uh, and politically, of course, we are. After the, the Second World War, well, it took some time yeah, to to play a role again. Yeah. So automatically, you concentrate yourself on so so-called soft policies. Yeah. Automatically, yeah, um, because on the other feels you are not so important, and uh, that's why. Both Germany's are looking and concentrating a lot on human rights and will continue to do that. Now, of course, uh, with the in- European integration, with Germany's role in Europe, things have changed very considerably. But uh, we still think it's better to advocate on human rights. And we do not like uh, the loudspeaker policy. We do the silent diplomacy, which is our success model. And it works. It also works in China. And uh, other countries do it differently. Yeah, There are a lot of countries asking us, you should take more responsibility. Okay. Uh, not not in China, generally. Yeah? By sending troops to crisis zones, where Germany always is very reluctant. We send no troops to Iraq. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, Vetoing in the United in the UN Security Council. So, uh, but people are asking us: you should now take more responsibility, and not only moral responsibility, but hard facts. Mm-hmm. That means money. That means arms. And uh, be more, let's say, be yeah, be more influential. Use your power. And we are still a little reluctant a little bit reluctant Uh, we are discussing a lot in Germany is this the role that we should take Um, should we really be dominant somewhere as other countries are asking you in my opinion we should not but uh, it is very often and specifically in the last five years more or less or five to ten years um, where people say okay Germany please be more influential in the United Nations, but also in NATO yeah, um, and, uh, Euro, and Europe and all the OECD and all the international forums which are the G7. My personal opinion is that uh, we are using our political power in a very correct way, Yeah, not too much and not too little and this is the way it should be and it depends on the case of course. In some cases you have to put more, in some cases you can do less. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, sometimes I wonder if Germans have a more, you know, the, the reality of a refugee or somebody fleeing political persecution is more real. Uh, you know, where I come from in Canada, uh, by the time a political refugee gets to Canada, yeah. uh, they have been through bureaucracy after bureaucracy and screened by the United Nations in most cases. Yeah. So by the time they get there, you know, it's it's the the people of Canada are quite distant. Whereas in Germany, you you know, you had people getting shot at while they were. You know fleeing from one side of the wall to the other yes uh, so I, I imagine for I just have this impression that for Germans uh, perhaps they're 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 more willing to help out political refugees because it's more immediate for them
2: yeah well you see um, what happened at the german German border of course it's, it's und- you cannot discuss it and yeah. uh, But we have a system concerning asylum, and Hong Kong also has been playing a role this two years ago. Mm. We have an office for migration and refugees, which is not a government authority. And it is completely independent from the government.
1: It is, oh, so I didn't realize this. So it operates independently.
2: Completely independently. And this means, the reason is very simple, because asylum is a very, very high, very, very high good in Germany. Mm Protected, of course, by the Constitution, by the basic law. That's why government should not intervene. And that's why we were not even informed about the cases of of Hong Kong. We didn't know. We were not asked. And And
1: this division is very deliberate.
2: This division is strict, um, also, my ministry says we do not interfere in their work. It's, it's a case-by-case case decision. That's why also we could not, not say now all citizens of one country, they will get asylum to Germany. This would be not true yeah. because it's a case-by-case. Case. Of course, if after 100 cases of, of one country, then it's a certain, yeah. you can be quite sure. But this depends. Not the government who can say now we will let everybody in for asylum. Refugees is a little bit difficult. Okay. There you had the... Uh, in 2015, Angela Merkel, in a very emotional moment, said, every refugee can come to Germany. Of course, this was a little bit complicated in the European framework, because we didn't consult them. But it was a minute of emotions from Merkel, where she really saw this and said, come on, we are strong enough, we can help them, we take them. What she missed, of course, then to correct it, two, three, four days later, saying, we cannot take everybody. Not everybody. Yeah. Not yeah. everybody, yeah? yeah. Not everybody. This is also so clear that we cannot afford to take everybody. But this clarification was probably a little bit missing. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but and still, we have today the situation in in Europe concerning refugees that we are we are fighting for a, a unified refugee policy because at the moment it's a port of entry. And uh, the rest, okay. Yeah? Yeah. And, uh, and this must be changed and there must be a sort of burden sharing. There are different formulas you can think about, the burden sharing which is necessary, because what we have just seen in Morenia, uh, in the in the Greek, uh, this is really something Go that ahead. is uh, it should not happen in Europe. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It seems like Germany has done a better job of integrating refugees and I wonder if uh, you know maybe because they have a little bit of experience in the whole field of integration after reunification, you know, maybe maybe it's because people don't agglomerate in one or two cities in Germany. When they when they arrive they, they go out yeah. and they find work in the various Mittelstand across the country. But yeah for t- some reason Germans might be better at it than others.
2: I don't, first I don't think they are better than others okay. you have always to be careful about this. but I think the, the integration started not with the unification started after World War II yeah. Germany was destroyed the men were either dead or imprisoned Um or injured, so it, Germany had to be reconstructed completely. There was more or less nothing left. So we asked specifically Turkish citizens, yes, could, the so-called Gastarbeiter, could you please come and help us? And they said, of course, we come if we get enough money, we come and we do the job. And. Um, and now they are, they are in fourth generation. Yeah, they started 70 years or 65 years ago. And they helped us. And that's why we have always a, a very good relation. If you go to Berlin to go to Kreuzberg, you will see this is a, not a Turkish ghetto, but let's say where the, the majority of the people is Turkish, integrating on the same side are Germans. Mm-hmm. And it works. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there, there is, in Wan around the corner from my office, a, a, a fairly new uh, yeah. Turkish uh, restaurant. It, like, serves right onto the street, uh, and they uh, they have, I guess, the original restaurant was in Berlin, and they still have one there, and yeah. they have, you. If like, on the street in Wan they proudly display their picture of Angela Merkel at their restaurant yes. here in Hong Kong. Yeah. You know, this is this is what they put on the spot. Yeah, I'm Very
2: proud of it. I will never forget one situation. I was in Berlin in the football stadium, and the German national team play against, played against the Turkish national team. And of course, the it was a national, so the fans were not one block, one block, but all together. Yeah. And uh, there was a Turkish fan waving his Turkish flag, and on the side, he had his German passport. <laughs> and this is exactly, yeah. Yeah. This for me was very important. This picture, yeah. And uh, coming back to Europe, also one one impression I had now when I was in Europe a couple of weeks ago, and we went to Portugal, and then we went with a car over the border, Portugal, Spain, and just to be a free man, no documents, no passport, just go. Yeah. So this, yeah, freedom of movement, which also happened due to unification. Yeah, sure. yeah. Um, one of the main. Consequences of unification. What's the beginning of freedom of movement over the Iron Curtain? Yeah, and it was we take it so for for granted everything. It is not.
1: You got to go back to your mother's birthplace.
2: Um, yes. Yeah. I have been there already. I have been there with her. Yeah. I yeah. And uh, and this travel freedom, of course. Now the first weeks, two, three, four weeks after Corona started in in, in Europe again, and we raised again the 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 borders, which was a yeah. very wrong movement. Yeah, it yeah. was yeah. due to chaos and due to fear, and I think everybody regrets. Mm-hmm. And I'm hopeful this is not going to happen again. Yeah, um, from all countries. And but this freedom of move, Europe has achieved a lot. And if you look, German unification '90 ninety two Treaty of Maastricht making more like the eu possible, making euro possible yeah, yeah paving the ground for this, for the single currency which then became reality nine years later
1: yeah I mean these, these were all big big, big moves yeah, so I, I am going to change gears a little bit because I've got you here, and uh, I do want to look a little more in lastable
2: samoobia.
0: We can take a beer break. Yeah, Yeah. just a
2: short beer break. Yeah, we can do
0: a beer break. And while we refill our beers, just another reminder to support Harbor Times if you like what we do. Myself and Jasmine have a great podcast on Hong Kong folktales and scary stories lined up at the end of the month for Halloween. So if you want early access to that, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Links for supporting are in the show notes. And I think the beers are just about refilled. Let's get back into it.
1: All right, Andrew, we're back here for part two with Cyril Ma of uh, Harbour Times. And we're speaking to the German Consul General. We took a little break to refill our beers. If you're uh, talking to the German Consul General, <laughs> you better believe we're going to have a couple of beers.
2: Uh, let's say Brust, huh? Brost, yeah, the reunification. <laughs> hey. Thank you, thank you. Oh.
1: So we've talked a lot about what happened over in Europe, about the reunification. We even talked about your time in Africa. Uh, but of course, Asia is very important as well. And uh, since we've, we've got you here, we've got to, we've got to hit on the hot topic of the moment, which is, you know, after the uh, the recent visit of China's number two over to Europe, including Germany, and almost immediately after a couple of days later, the German government announced their kind of uh, their reorientation of their policy towards this part of the world, and referring to it as the Indo-Pacific strategy, which you know, encompasses a much bigger area, a much bigger way of thinking. Uh, I think sometimes when people have talked about an Asia-Pacific strategy, it just sounded like everything from Hawaii to maybe Singapore. Exactly. But an Indo-Pacific strategy is much bigger. and takes recognition of you know, Indo as in India, Indonesia, you know, and things even west of that. So tell us a little bit about that. What does this reorientation mean?
2: Well, in principle, it's uh, the result of COVID-19, or one result of COVID-19, that we were dependent too much on some countries or some supply chains, and it was impossible that we don't not get our medicine in Europe, which the older people need, because the supply chain is not working or because a certain country is saying you don't get it now or the prices are increased or whatever so we said we aim to be more independent and to diversify I think this is the main issue, diversification of and reducing of dependencies on certain countries, on certain products, on supply sales. So this is what is behind. And there what is national, of course, uh, we can produce uh, the most needed things and we are going to produce them in, together in Europe. Um, but to concentrate on a very, very important region, getting more and more important, uh, which is the Indo-Pacific region. And uh, there, of course, India, is one of the biggest Mm players in the region and ASEAN with the top Indonesia is the second biggest player and to uh, increase let's say our relation multilateralism and uh, relations to this region in our opinion is very important. Um, This does not mean decoupling China, mm-hmm. so we have a different approach than other countries, uh, have or had, so it's not it's China plus and not China mean, minus, okay. and this is our approach, very clear. And, of course, we do not cooperate only in, in business and uh, things we are going planning, probably, to make free trade agreements with some of these countries. Human rights, South China Sea, and so it's also, let's say, a platform to to use and to live multilateralism because for us it's very clear a rule-based law uh, multilateralism is the world presence and of the future Uh, probably some rules might be changed if if you look at WTO or wherever Um, this everybody is flexible change where needed but the real ground rule-based behavior of countries in, in a multilateral framework This is, I think, the the main things about this initiative, which really, indeed, after the visit of the Chinese Foreign Minister, also in Germany, was uh, presented afterwards, yes.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, the Foreign Minister Heiko Maas, from, you know, out of Berlin, was very specific, you know, focus on, quote, stronger partnerships with democracies in the region, such as Japan and South Korea, to promote the rule of law. Yeah. And so, you know, when you talk about the supply chains, most of those supply chains have arisen in an organic fashion. I mean, the idea with the WTO was that there would be a leveling of the playing field uh, across all nations. Um, So those supply chains have evolved, emerged. They weren't necessarily planned, but, you know, for creating complex, uh, whether it's complex, Pharmaceuticals or telecommunications devices, there may have yep. many inputs from many places. How do you redirect supply chains of that level of complexity? Is that included in the strategy?
2: Or... Well, it is probably a result of the strategy. It's, mm-hmm. It should not be at the beginning. But of course, if you want to be more Independent, you need different supply chains, yeah. shorter supply chains, based product-based su- supply chains. So you, really, a big package of cyber diversification. Um, our Mr. Heiko Maas, who he is my boss, um, he had the idea two years ago. He launched, or one and a half years, the idea of the Alliance of Democracies, yeah. which was after the, let's say, the the specific ruling of the united states for western this uh, we are seeing less so we said okay we make now an alliance of democracies um, like-minded and to to cover a little bit this hole that is still existing and this fits perfectly well in the his his view and his vision of that peace alliance of democracies and alliance of multilateralists can cope with the biggest problems that we are facing in the world. And this is definitely, let's look at ch- climate. I would really say climate change is one of the most important things. Uh, the conflict between China and the US. Um, you can only combat and confront these problems with. Such set strategies, yeah. working together on human rights, on rule of law, but on every practical issues. Of course, if you look India, uh, they have always felt a little bit neglected mm-hmm. uh, because, yeah, okay, I don't have to explain the reasons to put them on board and to get them on board. And ASEAN the same, yeah, to get them on board with Europe and Germany. Um, I, in my opinion, is a very important and good step.
1: Yeah, I mean it's. Uh I know Germany is not the only country that's uh, made, you know, take, had a similar reorientation or is considering no. all these types of relationships. And as you say, a lot of it was born out of uh, the experience with COVID nineteen.
2: Well, the finalization, the idea, of course, was before that already that we should have something. But then I would say COVID nineteen speeded up it, it up a little bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. These were certainly interesting times. Um, I mean, we've covered off a lot of really interesting uh, material. I just have one one more thing that was on our list. <laughs> things that the team and I put together, and Cyril, this was this was your thing. Uh, one of the legacies of the unification of Germany, the reference to the, uh, the East German style hot dogs, the uh, Kürtwurst?
2: Kürtwurst? the Currywurst, the Currywurst. Okay, now you are uh, you are hitting a very sensible issue. Obviously,
1: oh, we we. we, 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 we the sensitive topics until the
2: end. Yeah, the curry, because nobody knows exactly who invented the currywurst. Yeah, whether it comes from West Germany or East Germany. Yeah. And uh, Everybody says he is making the best currywurst. If you ask some, even some restaurants here in Hong Kong, they will tell you well, this is the best currywurst you ever get. I think it's a very clear and easy answer. Germans in West and East love currywursts. <laughs> so, that, so here we go, a direct result <laughs> of unification. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. well, Dieter
1: Lambray, Consul General for uh, Germany to Hong Kong and Macau. Yeah. I want to say thank you very much for sitting down and talking with us today. Thank you very much for sharing your Pittsburgh beer.
2: Welcome. You're yeah, more than welcome. Thank you. Cyril and I are very
1: happy with that. But, so thank, uh, thank, you thank you very much. much yeah? and congratulations yeah. on the
2: unification and celebrating the 30th anniversary. And I hope that next year we will celebrate again. On yeah, yeah. <laughs> On the, yeah, the national off. day here in Hong Kong
1: fantastic yeah. Dankeschön
2: yeah, Dankeschön yeah.
0: and that brings us to the end of today's special episode thank you again to Herr Lamley and the German consulates of Hong Kong and Macau for having us and thank you for listening to the end hope to see you again soon for our usual monthly episode of Spyglass